Welcome to Level Up, the podcast that's dedicated to the higher education community that brings you countless stories of employees, students, and the faculty's journey in this remote world we live in. We will explore the many adversity that each one of us experience and share our story to inspire and inform. This is your host, Dr. Leland, a serial educator, an opportunities designer, and a compassionate leader. Day Level Up listeners, I'm super excited. I'm here with Dr. Luke Hobson. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Can't wait. Me too. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Do you want me to give you the entire life story that I have of how I got to where I am right now? Yes, please. Feel free. (laughs) So so I will start from the beginning in 1988. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go that far back. But how this all kind of crazy, weird journey started and how you and I even got connected together through the power of LinkedIn is that right now I talk a lot about instructional design, which basically means that my job is really trying to focus on designing the learning experience working with subject matter experts, taking what I know about learning sciences and putting it all together, which is basically instructional design in a nutshell. And I'm currently the senior instructional designer and PM for MIT. And I also do a bunch of stuff on the internet with instructional design, a blog, podcast, YouTube channel. I wrote a book all about it as well. But before I got to anything of this place, what I always like to mention too, is that a lot of people just assume that I have always loved education or been a great student. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I absolutely hated school growing up. I hated so much. I failed out of high school, which is super great because I had to go back to summer school three times in order to finally be able to transfer from that school to another one. And my issue was the fact that I did not understand what I was learning about and how that was going to be relevant for me in the real world. So trying to be able to tell someone you need to take four years in medieval literature where I'm like, and this helps me how? And people were always resistant to me because, of course, I'm not going to deny that I was probably a jerk as a teenager who was fighting with people. And I'm sure I did not ask that in the most appropriate way of how is this going to serve me in the real world. So I kept on hearing about how like, oh, you'll figure it out when you're older. And then I kept on getting older and older and realizing that that was all useless for me. So I just quit. So basically, from there, I finally went to a school that actually offered something that I could see the relevancy as far as for how am I going to use that, because this school offered music classes, and I wanted to be a musician growing up. So hence, I was like, haha, I get it. This actually is going to help serve me. Why don't I take this seriously? From there, I got all straight A's. I was able to go and apply and I got accepted into Southern New Hampshire University of um, all places, which actually was like right down the road for me at the time, which was great. So I went there. I graduated. I actually then worked there as an online academic advisor, coaching and serving students in an online capacity. And that is when I was networking up a storm with everyone I could at that university because I kept on trying to figure out what do all of these people do? Because there weren't just professors. I was like, what do you what do you do in your job? Like, what do you actually do here? And from that, I found someone who was an instructional designer. And I was talking with him. And I was like, so what's your job? And he's like, well, you know how you walk students through and you coach them through those online courses? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, someone has to make those. And that's where I come in. 
And I was like, oh my God, like I want that job. Like, how do I get your job? So that became a passion of mine is trying to be able to go and to make these online learning experiences and do my best to make sure that no one went through the same learning experience that I went through, which is the whole like, yeah, you'll figure it out later. It's like, no, I want you to know how these life skills are going to be helpful for you today, right now, but you can actually go and use. And I was able to go and do that for uh, a few years at Northeastern, and then, like I said, eventually MIT. And I just kept on talking about it, which how that all comes back full circle to the blog podcast and all the other stuff. And now I'm somehow a, a talking head about instructional design on the internet. And that's my life. And that is what I, I currently do. I wish that four minutes is just like fast forward to how many <laughs> Let me take I you love through that 15 years. Like, yeah, that's what I do. Like, yeah. um, I'm just curious, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners are also curious, what is it like to be an instructional designer? It like, is. Give us a shorter version and slash, you know, really intense kind of picture in our heads. Sure. So I would say that instructional design, we can split that up into a couple of different categories because a lot of people when they hear about instructional design nowadays, if you Google that and try to read more about it, you just hear about like tools and different types of software. And it's like, yeah, it's like a part, but it's really not what it is that I actually do. I mean, more so, I would say that I need to know how learning works because, of course, I am the person designing the experience of what students are exactly going to be going through. So when you are taking an online course and you log into a learning management system, you are literally clicking like page by page, section by section within the modules. Someone has to build that and design that. So that is a huge part of my job, but I am also a project manager. I need to make sure of all the courses and programs that I'm developing, that they're going smoothly and that they're on track. So I'm constantly communicating with everybody, whether it is the advisors, the subject matter experts, the professors, uh, customer support, the engineering team, accounting to make sure I'm on budget and track and all of that good stuff. And then, of course, I'm doing a bunch of things for research as well. I need to stay up on track as far as for the courses, how they are performing. Can I make them better? Is there something new that's inside of the field that I really need to pay attention to in order for me to try to be able to figure out how to incorporate that into my designs as well? And then last but not least, I would say that I am a relationship manager. I need to make sure that I know how to be able to influence people at the right points of time to be able to get their buy-in as I am working with them. Because for a lot of folks, they don't know what instructional designers do. So I need to be able to try to convince folks about my part of the job of like how I am serving you, how I am helping you on this project. And of course, how I can make things come together with my vision and what I know about as well too. So I need to be able to have those good outstanding relationships with my subject matter experts. And that when you put that and slice that all together, that's really instructional design. Not so much about the tools and the flashy stuff, a lot more with working with people and thinking about the entire experience from start to finish. Hmm. Okay. That's a lot. So what is it like to be like an MIT instructional designer compared to, let's say, a regular school? Sure, sure. So I think the first thing that has been really interesting is that I call myself 
a hybrid instructional designer because somehow all of the instructional design jobs that I have had have been I work at a higher education institution. So, you know, SNHU, Northeastern, MIT. But the people who are taking my courses are often adults who are going back to school for professional development purposes. So it's weird. So I have like this higher ed side, but I also have this corporate side because it is literally organizations sending their employees go back to school. So when I am doing that, it has been very interesting to think about because I need to keep in mind everything from the academic standards, rigor and quality. I need to make sure that it is 1000% like a legitimate MIT course because I am working with the MIT professors to build their courses for them. So I'm trying to be able to take what they do within a face-to-face capacity and what they have always done for years and years and years. And that's how it's been so prestigious and make sure to bring that over into the online space. But to give that a bit of a twist, because you can't take something face to face and just immediately throw it online. Doesn't work. So I have to do that in order to really make it all come together. So it's been really interesting because the professors who I am working with, like they are literally some of the brightest minds on the planet, which is really cool. But then of course, I have to almost be like the facilitator, translator, whatever you want to say to be like, okay, that's super complicated. How do I try to be able to go and make this a little bit more digestible for somebody who they haven't come back to school yet in 20 years? And this is the first time we're taking a professional development program. How do we get them there? But some of the uh, people who I call subject matter experts or SMEs, that's who I'm referring to for faculty and professors. But for some of them, they're doing like a thousand other things because they're trying to you know, maneuver all around with MIT and projects and whatnot too. So a lot of it is time management as well. It's just like, so my course is really important, but I also see what you're trying to be able to go and solve the COVID-19 problem and you're working on different things. I'm like, so what's more important? I'm like, "Mm, I kind of want you to think about the pandemic and solve that, but I still need you for the course. (laughs) So there's a lot of negotiating to make sure. Yeah, there's a lot of balance, making sure that things all come into play. But one of the professors I was working with at the time, he was trying to find a way to be able to detect COVID-19 before we had a way to detect it at all of any types of tests. And he did that through AI, of course. So he actually was able to determine about being able to take reports from a uh, existence like a collection as far as for what would be a COVID cough. And you could therefore actually cough into your smartphone and it would be able to match the frequency and the waves as far as for how you were actually coughing. And it would give you a likelihood of yes or no. And this is before any COVID tests really early on. And that was the person I was designing a course with. So when he was like, hey, I'm like really busy right now. And I'm like, yeah, you're like, you're really busy right now. <laughs> yeah. go, go ahead. We need yeah. we need to solve the pandemic first right. before MIT stuff. Right. Like, right. okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's like, I kind of need you to, to, to do this. So like, hmm, hmm, how's this going to, how's this going to come into play? So yeah, that's, that's, that's a normal part of my job. I think that is so exciting trying to extrapolate information that they're giving you at a thousand percent. And trying to slow-mo the information and said, okay, first of all, let's act like there were 10. And how are we going to decipher A through B? So I think your job is super important to me, trying to glue pieces together to make sure that it's one whole piece that we can digest as as normal people uh, think, right? Um, how has your design like revolutionized the educational industry? I hear a lot 
and also I see a lot in terms of idioflow. I think that's how you say it. What is it like? Oh, with edgeflow? Yeah. yeah. So I will let me first take a step back and say that I don't think I've revolutionized everything and hire it. I'm trying. I think that's my thing. That's my ultimate goal is to actually make online learning better for everybody because we have all taken awful online courses before in the past. And I don't want anyone to go through that like what we all all have done previously. So my goal has always been, how can I share as much information as I know to be able to inform people about best practices that have worked really well for me and hopefully they'll work well for you as well? Because one of the biggest things about instructional design that kind of is like a bit of a debated topic, if you will, but to me, instructional design is like a form of art. There isn't one exact way for you to say that all courses should look like a certain way. There is a bit of a perspective that comes with that to be able to say if there's a level of creativity and freedom that as you are working with a subject matter expert and partnering with them, trying to really be able to make it come alive. And for some people, that's actually where they kind of get stuck because they're like, but I want a very specific process to follow and I need a pattern. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you don't, it all, it all really depends upon the flow. It depends upon the goals. What are the skills the students are actually working on? So how do we really make that come all together. And there's different ways as far as for doing that. And sometimes it's more about using techniques that are essentially called learning techniques, like with scenario-based learning or project-based learning or gamification or micro-learning or simulations or whatever it is. My process, which I tell people about, is something that's relatively simple when you hear about it in theory, but it kind of gets lost once people try to go and apply it into the real world. But it's called something that's called backward design. And what backward design basically is, my process is that I am working my way backwards towards what people normally do. So I first start with being able to identify what problems am I trying to solve and then determining what are the goals. So at the end of the day, what are the outcomes that someone should be going through with a course or a training or a program or a workshop or a class, whatever it is, what are the main goals that we should always set our sights on in order to help to solve the problem, whatever they are facing within their academic journey, their professional life, whatever it is. Then I take a step backwards towards being able to say, what items can I actually say that are going to be an assessment to be able to determine that a person is appropriately learning at this rate? And we can evaluate that and make sure that they are on track to hit the goal. Then you take a step back even further to then be able to determine about the activities. What types of practice activities, learning activities can we build in that's going to allow students to build that confidence, that growth mindset, work towards that momentum to then work towards being actually able to be properly evaluated for an assessment and to then hit the goal. And then you take one more step back further, even that, and then you're thinking about the content, the readings, the videos, the webinars, the podcasts, the presentations. And then I put that all together and I map it out. So then I can map out every single part of the course to then say that when you log in, you are then going to go from a type of like a series of a sequence to see it's going to be a reading, a video, a practice question, a follow-up, another video, a reflection question, and then an assignment of some kind. And I can literally map out the entire learning experience in that process that goes from the very start of a course all the way until the end. 
And that is something that I have been teaching a lot of to go back to your point within Eduflow. <laughs> so there is an entire course that's out there, but it's really free for the instructional design uh, principles for course creators, which is a free course you can take at Eduflow. And that's what we basically do is try to be able to teach you the fundamentals of instructional design. And one of them being the Addy model, which I'm not going to go into because that's a whole number entire podcast topic for itself, but there's the yeah. Addy model, but then there's I'm also familiar with Addy model. Okay. Wonderful. So then there's also, yeah. you can use backward design and Addy at the same time, along with yeah. scenario based learning and peer reviewed assignments and everything else. So what Eduflow and, um, their, uh, uh, founder David did was that he, him and his, um, other counterpart who works over there, William Crenier, they basically came together and reached out to a bunch of us talking heads and in instructional design and said like, Hey, this is what we want to do. Uh, you want to be a part of this and do workshops every month and host this. And it's been a blast and it's been awesome because we have had literally thousands of educators and aspiring instructional designers go through the program and really kickstart their instructional design journey that way. And it's this has been a ton of fun. Yeah, actually, that's how I got into you, because when I was thinking once I got my certification, I really got to think, okay, I'm doing course development, but it's super fast. That's my, another question is, how long does it take you to develop one course? Mm, it all depends. I mean, it certainly does depend upon the size and scope and budget and people power and everything else too. To give a general answer though, let's say if I'm designing a program that's going to be anywhere from yeah, like six to eight weeks, I'm probably looking at around three to six months, depending upon what it is. Something that I do because I like to be able to go through with testing, getting feedback, and then applying that to everything is that I do pilot programs for all of my mm. courses. And in higher ed, that's like unheard of. And it kind of is mind boggling because I'm like, but you want the student feedback. We need to know, did, did we design it for the correct target audience? Yeah. Is there something we can improve upon? Is there something that we just totally missed? You know, so as far as for that goes, I usually aim towards the higher end of the six months because that process in and of itself has to go through where I am collecting surveys. I'm going through them. I'm trying to find things that I really didn't expect and I can't explain about. And then I host interviews and focus groups and then ask those same students and learners more to just tell me more because it's something that they mentioned that I wasn't aware about, or is there a better way that I can fix something? Or did we do too much? Is there too much content? Do I need to cut down? Like what, what do I need to do to make it even better? And I do try to do that like every single time until I know for sure sure that like, all right, the course is legitimately as perfect as I can make it for the time being. So now it's it's good to go. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. Actually, I like the the pilot program because most courses, people create it, you just submit it and it goes through and then the faculty look at it and you're like, this does not make it, sense. I've had right. those classes when I'm teaching. I'm like, okay, I need to create a video to explain this something disconnected in here. And um, I wish that they would be like a direct line to the instructional designer saying, hey, we need to change this A, B and C here. And, you know, and most universities don't. They don't. Uh, and and I, 
and it becomes it becomes kind of like a workflow problem too because if you don't bake into that as far as for we're going to need more time we're going to have to do this we're going to have to do this it eventually just goes into like a queue and it kind of gets like lost in the abyss of you have all these people submitting emails and tickets and trying to talk about things but then you don't some people don't write it down they mention it in a zoom call and you're like oh, what was that what did they say two months ago about the thing because i didn't have time to do it then and you're like eh. so for Plus me, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I, don't, I don't remember. So for me, it's just like, no, like I need this like in a survey of it. I need to be able to do these interviews and then I need time to test it again because that is what we do. And it's, it's kind of funny. It's like, what I think about is that imagine if, if Apple or Google or Tesla or Twitter, or like any of those companies, like what if they just like threw things out there and we're like, uh, well, let's see if this thing works. <laughs> you just launch it, and you're like, I think there should be more to it than that. And it's yeah. still, and like, and I treat like you can do Twitter now by talking. Yeah, just 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 figure it out. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, and everything crashes. It's buggy. There's problems. There's misdirection. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> and it's like no, like education should be treated in the same way. Of like, all right, this is an important product. We need to be able to have user experience testing, which is basically from our students and learners telling us like, did it actually work? Does it make sense? And sometimes too, it's not like anything crazy big. It could just be something. And, and to give you a an example, I had one thing that I could not figure out what was happening within the program. And I kept on hearing from people that they were spending up to 10 hours on one assignment and it should have taken them at most 30 minutes. And I'm like, what are you doing? And it was, it wasn't just like one or two people. It was like 20 people. I was like, 10 what? Hours. Yeah. I was like, what are you doing for 10 hours? So finally, like I, I kept on seeing that. And then luckily, because I do interviews and, and focus groups and whatnot, I was able to ask where I was like, hey, folks, a bunch of you said it was taking you eight to 10 hours to do this assignment. I did not mean it for going that long. Please tell me why. What are you doing? And I found out that I made an assumption that the way that the assignment was created, they were only going to naturally submit one to two paragraphs. It was something like thinking about everything that you learned about from this week, reflect upon a moment of time where you could have used this knowledge. What would you have done differently? How could have it been incorporated? You know, something like that, a bit of a reflection piece. And for some of those people, they submitted like eight to 10 pages. I was expecting them to submit two paragraphs at most, but what I did not say was a recommendation of how long it should be. I was leaving it up to them as far as for giving them that autonomy where I was like, your results, like you, you, just, you just do you and it's going to be great. The point is for you just to think about this, to practice it. It's not graded. I just, I just want you to think and make sure we're tying in everything all together. And some of them took it very, very seriously and wrote an entire huge essay. And I didn't know because it it's not graded. So I'm not going through the submissions and grading them. I'm like, it's ungraded. Just you do you. And I was wrong. So because Master of that. thesis, here you go. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, almost like, halfway there. Yeah, it's like, who writes more than they have to? I was like, that's unheard of for adult learners in professional development. Like, that's that's not a thing, you know? And they, and they all did. Uh, so... I learned after that of like, I will put a recommendation going forwards in the future. Follow the recommendation if you want. But like, that's what I'm expecting you to dedicate for timing. And that's all. Wow. Yeah, that is important to have some type of guideline and be very intentional and specific. Wow. Okay. Now, finally, what are some ideas that you could provide for my fellow uh, professors when it comes to teaching their class that their students could really help their learning journey? Sure. So I actually just released a new 
blog post about this um, two days ago that you can find on drbluecopson.com that just basically talks about like andragogy um, and everything as far as for how adults learn. And I put together, because I've been teaching now for a couple of years online, and I just put together my thoughts about everything when it comes to this. And there's a list of, I, th- I think there's like seven different items is not in, in front of me. But there's like seven different items on there. And if someone can even just do like one of those things, it would be a, a tremendous win for everybody. Uh, feedback is definitely one of them. I mentioned that as well, too, because I know the standard thing for any university is that they have a type of a course evaluation thing at the end, but that's also at the end. So it's like, yeah. it's already done. You like, yeah, maybe for the next run, you can incorporate that, but that's already too far gone. Whereas if you can get it from a weekly type of a Uh, of a pattern for them to be able to submit that the information is fresh inside of the students and the learners minds. So that way you're not waiting all the way until the end of 10 or 12 or 16 weeks. And instead you have timely feedback and that is super duper helpful for making changes on the fly. If something is truly like, Oh my God, broken. So, but that way you can do that one. The other thing that I would say from just being an instructor as well, which I have learned is that if you are able to be vulnerable and to look like a normal human being who actually makes mistakes, it goes such a long way. And I know that when I first started to teach, I was thinking about how it's just like, I have to be the most knowledgeable one. I have to be the guiding person and everything. And it's just like, well, yes, they expect you to, of course, know a thing or two if you're teaching this type of subject. There's been plenty of times where I have had students who have come into my courses and even some of the instructional design courses, they've been a designer for 30 years. And I was just like, you've been a designer for literally almost as long as I've been alive. You probably know more than me. And that's okay. (laughs) Like We have a different perspective. I have a different angle on things. But if I am able to get these people to also then contribute and talk about things within the group, it's incredible because then you're going to have such a more organic conversation and all eyes don't need to be on you the entire time. And when you can flip that back into having other people coach and essentially like mentor other students within the course, then you're going to have a better better type of discussion, whether it's a uh, face-to-face, virtual, whatever, Zoom type of discussion, or if it's something within the, the discussion board itself, or if you're doing like peer-reviewed activities where they are literally going about and reviewing one another's work and chiming in upon uh, what they can improve upon, what they did well, you know, and things of that nature. That has just been amazing to see because there was one class that we had not too long ago where I didn't have to say anything. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Where one person asked a question and the, he threw it out to me. And he was just like, oh, Dr. Hobson, what would you do in this case? Blah, 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 blah. And it was a great question. And I knew of all the different experiences in the background from all the students. And I was just like, let me uh, not talk for a second. And let me just see, like, what, what do you folks think within the class? And then sure enough, every single person went around the room and basically did what they what they would have done in his situation and explained it to him. And it was just amazing where I was on mute for like 20 minutes. They're just go. They, they, they didn't need me. I was like, they're literally learning amongst themselves and sharing their stories. And oh my gosh, it was insane. It was so, so, so cool. And I was like, I, I, if I can do this for every single classroom where people are getting that much out of it, because then of course the feedback after that was just like, this is great. I actually bonded with my peers. We had a real conversation and it wasn't that type of like forced into 
discussion of like, I agree, I disagree. And it's kind of like yeah. weird. It was like, you know, it was like, a, it was a legitimate conversation. It was awesome because of course people are trying to be able to go and thrive in different types of learning communities. And I know that is super hard to set up because then you as the instructor feel like you have to be the one who is constantly talking, but that's not a community. That's you talking to other people when you can sit back and let the other people speak and shine a light on them and how awesome they are. Then that's when the magic happens. So be vulnerable admit you're a human being, allow other people to take control at different points of time. And it's insane to see how other people will step up and to be able to help one another. It's awesome. Yeah, I do that with role playing too. I have them mm. role play. And at the end of the day, they're like, that was harder than I thought, you know, <laughs> have to think now. And I'm like, well, that's what happens in real life. Yeah. Right. When, when you're told to do something, you're like, wait, wait a second. Can you give me two weeks to respond to this? You can't do that, especially in HR, you know? And so I love doing that. So thank you for that. Now, any last advice to anyone who's listening to my podcast? Um, tell them where you can find their book. Oh, yeah, of course. So I guess for last, last moment advice, what would I say? So let me share one more tip that I actually learned within the um, EduFlow community, by the way. And once again, shout out to William Kernier because he thought about this. Have you ever done speed dating in an online class before? No, I saw that post this yeah. morning with a five oh. minute breakout room and 15 minutes. I'm like, ah, I'm going to do that in my class. Oh That's my gosh. Yes. I would highly encourage you for any of your listeners who are doing this. And basically what, what this basically is, is that you have a series of breakout rooms on Zoom where it just puts people into rooms of two to three people. You give them five minutes to just basically go and introduce themselves and, and talk about a prompt or icebreaker, whatever you're going to say. And then after those five minutes, then it changes again and again and again. And then finally, you've had the opportunity to be able to go around the room and essentially talk to every single person in the class where that is a huge problem, especially within online, that you just get thrown into a classroom with 30 people and you're like, who are these people? Like, what do you do? Like, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know you. I don't want to be like, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not going to open up to this random stranger. Like, I, so you need some kind of activity to break the ice. And a lot of people are like, yeah, but icebreakers are awful and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, some of them are truly awful. But trying to do this speed dating thing, every person who was involved in that was like, this is the coolest thing I have ever done. And no one else has ever done. I, I, I have never even heard about it. And I've been teaching online for years. I was like, yeah, speed dating is cool. Like, this is great, man. <laughs> so Wait, I started I dated in 20 years. So I don't know how that's right. Yeah, exactly. Like, what? Okay. Yeah. I got the idea though. And I was looking, I was like, that is actually very interesting. And I'm going to use it next week. I, I, I have an online courses that I've teached and, and usually you go in, I ask for their, you know, how they're doing, but then if no one wants to talk, then you're right. talking by yourself. Yes. But this time they're forced to talk to each other at five minutes intervals. I like that. Oh, it's so cool. It, it is so neat. And so zoom is the easy one to do that, but I use a couple of different other virtual platforms too, but I'm kind of curious about trying to make that happen as well because I've used GatherTown a lot of the times, which is like, imagine if the Legend of Zelda and Zoom had a baby. That's kind of what GatherTown is, which is like really, yeah, it's really funny to see. It's like a 64-bit type of a little thing where you have your own custom avatar and it's all based around proximity. 
So as you are moving closer to someone, the little zoom window at the top opens up and you can hear them more because now you're physically close to them. But then when you move away, then their video and their audio goes away and fades out just like a normal conversation that you walk away from somebody. Now you can't hear them anymore. So you have a, like a sense of um, autonomy and a freedom to be able to move around the room. So you're not stuck in a breakout room. You can go and pick and choose what breakout room you want to join and you can customize your own world. So I've been using GatherTown a lot for that. And we did something similar to that before, but Zoom, because you could just literally go and like put people inside of there. You didn't have to like wait for people to walk into the room. It was a little bit more like automatic. So there's a little bit more of a learning curve with something like GatherTown. And I've been using a few other different platforms too, as well that all have like their kind of their own it's like their own little quirks and like what makes them kind of like fun and, and different and, and things of that nature um but for doing that i i'm still going to just use zoom for the time being because it, it is like working so i don't have to keep thinking more about that but but yeah that's the last tip i would give to people um as far as we're trying to to make that a reality awesome any last minute or where can they find your book Oh, yeah, the book is helpful. Um, so I wrote a book called What I Wish I Knew Before Becoming an Instructional Designer. It is essentially a 222-page brain dump of all the things that if I could go back in time and tell myself about what the heck this job is in this field, is that. And I wrote it in a way that is not meant to be academic. It is meant to be a conversation. So okay. it is literally like if you're reading, a lot of people have said that like when they're reading it, they imagine like a buddy at a coffee shop is just talking to them about instructional design. And that's, that was the point. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not going to use academic jargon. I'm not going to write over your head. That's a weird scholarly level. I'm like, nope, I'm just going to talk to you like a normal human being and say, here's instructional design. Here are the pros. Here are the cons. Here's what I wish that I knew about. Here's how I design stuff. Here's how to actually make it into a career, which is like another thing of like, this is an entire career field. It's not just like one random little, like, you know, instructional design has been around since World You guys War were II. hidden for a while. Instructional but designers so were hidden for a while. Yeah. It's like wizardry, right? Like it's, you're you're there, but you're like, eh. Right. Now it's like, okay, we need to know what you're doing. Right. What, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like yeah. all of a sudden a flip switch. Like, okay, I, this is what I know, we're doing. I was on a, a phone call with one professor the other day and he mentioned that. He was just like, so instructional design is like brand new, huh? And I'm like, no, it's not. You just didn't know about us. Like we've been here. <laughs> but he's but he's never worked with one so it's like i i know but you think it's new so like i get it but anyway so that's what the yeah. the book's all about unless you're a SME, you don't really work with instructional designers no you wouldn't yeah you wouldn't know unless if it somehow came about for a project you were working on but other than that it's not like you know until of course obviously the pandemic happened where all of a sudden it was yeah. this like Hey, how do we make online learning not be terrible? And it's like, hmm, isn't there a field that someone knows how to do this? And it's like, yeah, here you go. So yeah, yeah exactly. Like we exist. There's there's a lot of literature out there about how to do this well and what to avoid. So it's like, yeah, you know, so so I so I contributed one more thing to that massive stack of all the other books of an instructional design. Um, and everything's on um, Amazon, which is the easiest way to find the book. And then of course my website. Are you in Barnes as well? Who was that? Are you in Barnes and Noble or just in Amazon? I'm, I'm not in Barnes and Noble. I looked at that the other day and I actually had to stop and think before I thought too far ahead where I was like, when was the last time I stepped foot in a Barnes and Noble? And couldn't tell you. It's been several really? years. Yeah. There's, I mean, that, that idea of being able to go and look at like a wall of books is something that I have not experienced. It's just more of like, I buy it on Amazon and then I go to my own coffee shop and that's, 
that's it. My so it's- kids drag me there. Like, mom, I need some, you know, um, sketchbook. And I'm like, okay, shouldn't you go to Michael's or Hobby Lobby? Sure, like, sure, yeah, yeah. No, we have it at, uh, you know, Barnes and I want to read this book. And I'm like, okay. So we go to Barnes and Nobles every Friday. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, there's not one near me. Like, oh, there's wow. there's literally Wait, none. Are you in no, no, I'm not in Boston. I am actually on the seacoast of New Hampshire. Oh, wow. Yeah. I so I commute to Boston and, uh, well, now not as much anymore. The pandemic kind of like completely changed out <laughs> my normal yeah. schedule. That's like. I used to live next to MIT. That's the reason why I know. I was uh, in between Harvard and MIT where I used to live. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So if I was in Boston or even in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, where I used to live years ago, there was a yeah. Barnes and Noble down the street. But over here, like, no, there's, there's nothing. And we have an Amazon bookstore too in San Diego. Oh, interesting. Cool. Mm-hmm. cool. And in LA, we have an Amazon store. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look that up in YouTube and see what's happening. You just go in and out. You don't even have to pay. It's there. It's ready. It's gone. That's cool. I, I can't wait until this actually becomes a thing that we're going to have more of these like across the entire country. Because right now it's yeah. like, yeah, I don't know anything like that over here. Right? <laughs> California is trying to always have new things happening. That's the reason why. But yeah. well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your time today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my podcast today. If you want to be a guest on my podcast or have questions, email me at leveluppbydocleland at gmail.com. Docleland spells D-O-C-L-E-Y-L-A-N-D at gmail.com. I will see you soon in my next episode. Stay connected, informed, and inspired. Until next time. Mm-hmm.